now we have the pleasure of um, time of offering, continuation of our worship, and um, God calls us to give back to him. We have uh, several ways that you can give. You can give online, um, or you can mail in a check, and there's also an offering box in the back, so please uh, do that, and please pray with me. Heavenly Father, you bless us in many ways. The many things you've done for us, you continue to do for us. Physical needs are met beyond what we can imagine oftentimes. And yet none of it we can take with us as we look forward to heaven and then heaven on earth, Lord. Let us remember that these things are temporary, but what to come is eternal. We pray that as we contemplate our giving today and throughout the week, that you can put it on our hearts to give joyously, sacrificially, Lord. And we just pray this in your son's name. Brothers and sisters, as we get ready to hear God's word, would you pray with me and ask with me that the Lord would do his work in us this morning. Let's pray. Father, as we look into scripture, your God-breathed words that you poured through the pen of Paul, and we ask that you would allow us by your Holy Spirit to receive it, to yield to it and that our lives would look different because of it. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, church, the message this morning is very simple. We should love one another. We saw this emphasized through the songs that we sang, the scripture that Val read to us, and it's one of those truths that might make you think immediately that we're in for a sort of run-of-the-mill, um, perhaps even boring sermon. Sure, love one another. But the first thing I want to get clear before we dive into the text is that our love for one another is a derived love, not a contrived love. We love because we're first loved. We give out love because we've been given a particular kind of love. Therefore, this is not a kind of love that we can do unless we're in Christ receiving the love that he demonstrated on the cross, Romans 5, while we were still sinners undeserving of love, he demonstrated his love by sending his son to die for us. Now a community that claims to have received this love should look a certain way. And that way that we look is loving. We love. Lots of verses to cover here in Romans chapter 12. Any one of these verses, some of them, just a portion of the verse, can merit its own entire sermon. And we're going to cover chapter 12, verses 9 through 21, because I think what brings all of it together is love. What we have is a profile in love, a profile actually in this love of God that we just sang about. So please turn with me to Romans chapter 12. And just like Paul did, 
We're going to do quick hits. We have lots of phrases, lots of one-liners, lots of reminders. It's almost like reading through the Proverbs, but they're commands prompting us to love one another. And if any of us in here this morning feel like, yeah, I get it, I get it, we're probably the ones that don't get it. He laid out thick doctrine for 11 whole chapters, praises God for this mysterious grand work of salvation at the end of chapter 11, and then tells us at the top of chapter 12, hey, we need to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. And that renewal of our minds doesn't mean we get to just stay trapped in our devotional, personal, individual, isolated, quiet time, but that the result of that quiet time, the result of the renewed mind, is how we act toward one another. You'll see right at the top of chapter 8, he finishes going through these spiritual gifts that we use to bless one another, to serve one another in verses 3 through 8. And then the first line he opens up and says, let love be genuine. Let love be genuine. Now, when I think of the word genuine, I think we have misunderstandings of what the word genuine really means. Or maybe we are easily duped into what genuine really means. Uh, I think we have misunderstandings as to what love really means or what love really looks like. And that we can say we love one another. We can sing songs about loving one another. But all of those are sort of external trappings that don't necessarily betray a reality inside of us. We can sing a song about love. And then as soon as we get out to the parking lot, demonstrate not so much love toward one another. He doesn't want an external conformity to love. He wants genuine love. For those of you who still have like actual paper uh, Bibles with you, you might be able to flip to the back and see somewhere that might tell you if this is made of leather or not, right? Or maybe when you're shopping and you're looking at a belt and it tells you this is genuine leather. Uh, well, what does genuine really mean when you see a belt or shoes or a Bible that says genuine leather? You might even think, wow, genuine leather. And it's only $20. That's amazing. Genuine leather. Well, when they use the hide of a cow, let's say, uh, to make genuine leather, they strip away the best leather save that for other products, and they take the bottom portion, the, the portion that was closest to the meat, uh, the weakest, the flimsiest portion, the ugliest portion, and they save that layer, and they layer them together and stack them, glue them together, paint it, and call it genuine leather. Now you might go, wait a minute, that's not genuine. They go, ah, it's leather. It's not plastic. Better leather would be top grain leather, and better leather than that would be full grain leather. Now you might go, top grain? I don't want just the top grain. I want the genuine article. Well, it's genuine. It's just pieced together with the weakest portions. Now, might we do that? Call something genuine love? Say, yeah, we're a genuinely loving community, but it, 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 there's love there, but it's weakly pieced together. It's painted over with songs and noise. And it's not that singing about it is bad. It just should be an outflow of the real thing. But the song isn't the real thing. The verse about love on your mug is not the real thing. When Paul says genuine, he doesn't mean what manufacturers mean by genuine. 
He means what manufacturers mean by the full grain, the whole thing. Genuine is real, actual. And what we're going to see in this profile, these several verses that we're looking at today, I'm calling it a profile in love because all of these commands are really aspects of what love actually looks like. You want to know what genuine love looks like? This is what it looks like. Do you want to know if you're a genuinely loving Christian? That is a genuine Christian. We need to know what it looks like. And you'll see that right away, we already get a surprise. We think of love as affection. That's not untrue. We see that in verse 10. We'll see that in a second. We think of love as emotion, passion, interest. And all those are not unrelated to love. But look at the first thing he says to define it. Evil and good. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Hate the evil stuff. And cling tightly to the good stuff that easily slips through our fingers if we're not paying attention. And so I want to help you see that what he's doing is he's not defining good and evil with love. He's defining love with good and evil. Let love be genuine. How do I know what's genuine? Well, do you know good and evil? Define love with the categories of good and evil. What our society does is define good and evil with the category of love, what they think love is. Passion, interest, what I want, what I desire, the sort of hallmarky, Hollywood, free spirit, unchecked, unfettered, no rules. Rules suffocate love. Real love is free-flowing and do whatever you want. And Paul's saying, no, 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 real love, genuine love is checked and kept in its lane of what is actually good. And you're going to be pressed by the world to let go of that, hold fast to it, and the stuff that the world tells you is actually love, but is actually evil, abhor that. I mean, it's a strong word. I mean, I don't, I don't like that. I don't care for that so much. I abhor that. I mean, it, I mean, it's a stronger word. It is. Hate it. That ability that we develop in ourselves as our minds are renewed and we start seeing things and feeling things and smelling things differently than the world does, that allows us to detect what is evil. But if we're not being, having our minds renewed, we don't detect it so easily. It's when you really hate the thing that you can detect it when it's creeping into your life, changing you. It's when your conscience is pricked and you go, that, that wasn't loving. That's not right. Your conscience calls you out on it or someone else calls you out on it in this loving community. But we hate it enough. We don't hate the rebuke or the correction. We hate the thing that we're getting corrected about and we thank the person for correcting us because I hate that thing. Thank you. I remember some time ago, I don't know if any of you have something like this. It's not really an allergy, but I almost want to just call it an allergy, but I, I cannot stand rye. Rye bread, rye anything. I can't, I can't stand it. And it's not like, I don't like it. Nah. I will gag. It, it like if I didn't think it had rye in it, and it did have rye in it, I'll just immediately start turning green. It is just this gag reflex. We were in, uh, my wife and I shopping one time and uh, getting loaves of bread. I don't remember. We came home. And as soon as I pulled, opened up the package of bread, and I, and I smelled the bread, and I, and I sniffed it, I'm like, this has rye in it. She's like, no, I specifically got one that doesn't have rye in it. And when you look at the ingredients in the front of this multi-grain bread, it has all kinds of grains except for rye. And I'm like, I'm telling you, I can't eat that. 
So we flipped it around and looked at the ingredients, and the dead last ingredient is rye. I hate it that much that I was able to detect it, right? That's what comes to my mind when he says, abhor evil, so that when it's around, it's not comfortable. You're not inoculated to it. But define what love looks like by understanding what evil is. And our minds need to be renewed in order to do that. We coast with a preset understanding of what love looks like, but in a, in a, in a world that is jamming love down your throat with misrepresentations of what love actually is, we need to have our minds continually renewed so that we don't conform to it, but we conform love to what God says is good and evil, and we hate the evil things. We hate the evil categories. That's where love begins. And then look at all of the action, the intentionality it takes. You can't coast and call that love. He says, abhor, that's a strong, intense word. Then hold fast or cling to what is good. Love one another with a brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. You know how growing up we always want to be the first to everything? I call shotgun. Last one's a rotten egg. When you read scripture, it inverses it. First one's the rotten egg, the one who pushes other people out of the way to get there first. Outdo one another in the other way. Outdo one another by putting the other person first. Outdo one another by showing somebody else honor. That doesn't happen by accident. That happens with zeal and fervor in verse 11. Don't be slothful in zeal, don't be lazy in diligence, but be fervent in spirit. The word behind fervent in the Greek is burning. Have a burning spirit. They probably put fervent because we think of burning as like anger oftentimes. But it's not. It's this red, hot, fresh out of the fire of God's love for us. And our hearts burn with love toward one another. And if we're lazy about it, that fire will go out. That coal will just turn gray. Don't be slothful in zeal. Show the brotherly affection to the people in your lives and in your community in this church. Do they know that you love them? Or do they have to assume that you love them? Well, brotherly, sisterly affection is shown. It's demonstrated. One of the things that is sometimes irksome about the five love languages deal, that, that whole phenomenon, is still really popular. I, I just text in love into Google and it was still like number five hit the five love languages website. I'm not saying don't read that and don't, it, it, it's just like, oh, that's my love language. Like we can ignore the other ones. Like the show of affection is just for some people, that's their love languages. But the rest of us, you know, no, affection is shown, affection is demonstrated and we do it intently and intensely. Don't be slothful in zeal with that brotherly affection, but be fervent in spirit. Burn with it and serve the Lord. What does service look like? Remember last week? <laughs> Actual gifts showing up and being in person with each other and doing things for each other, using our gifts and talents and resources toward one another. We don't love each other from a distance. We love each other through service, through help, through affection, and we outdo one another in doing it. 
That's kind of ironic, right? I'm going to be better than this person. Let me do something more loving. He's not saying actually think you're better than somebody else. He just talked to us about humility in the previous paragraph. But if we're going to be competitive at all, if you have any uh, oomph in your step at all, don't let it be to put yourself ahead of somebody else, but let it be to put someone else ahead of you by serving them, by showing your affection toward them. Serve the Lord. I love all these words. Hold fast. Show affection. Outdo one another. Don't be slothful in zeal. Be fervent. Be burning. Serve the Lord. Love is action. And love takes effort. It takes effort. It takes intentionality. And using our gifts to help one another so that people don't have to guess whether we're loving toward them. They have proof, hard proof and evidence. Some of y'all might need to start in your own marriages. We don't coast on the vows we exchanged on that day so long ago. But if somebody asks your spouse, does your husband love you? Does your wife love you? You should be able to point to stuff yesterday, this morning. And it's not just kept inside marriages. Your elders love you, your deacons love you. Or they ask the elders, does your church love you? We can point to things. Yes, they do this and they do that and they say this. And I can. And I'm thankful for that. I say these verses as an encouragement to you and not as a rebuke. Don't be slothful in zeal. Continue in that fervent spirit. Let it burn in the right way, right? The zeal of serving Christ. And then the next set of verses, we get a different flavor. He's telling us in verses 9 through 11 to love one another, to be intent about loving one another, but man, that's easy to do when things are easy. You know, it's it's easy to do when it's sunny out, you just got to raise. The politician you were vying for got elected. Whatever good news comes across your way, it puts you in a good mood, makes you happy. What about when you're not happy or when things go the other way? Are we allowed to kind of be grumpy toward each other, quick with each other, short with each other? I'm sorry, I'm just having a bad day. Too bad you're having a bad day. Even in the bad days, love with fervor. And that flavors the next set of verses in 12 through 16. Check it out. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. So I think what Paul's doing here, he's, he's moving into a category, and like I say, it's flavored with the tinge of difficulty and hardship. Why do I say that? Well, because he doesn't say rejoice in the things in front of you, but rejoice in the hope that's ahead of you. Everybody rejoices when there's something now in front of me to rejoice in, but when things are robbed of you, That thing that makes you happy, the thing that makes you giddy, the thing that makes you smile is taken away. How do you love then? 
if you're not clinging to a hope that's future. Rejoice in hope. Rejoice now in something that's coming later. Be patient in tribulation. Your translation, most translations say tribulation. It might say trouble. It might say affliction. The Greek word is to be pressed, squeezed, crushed. Like when you crush a grape to get juice out of it. So he's not talking about, ah, my girlfriend broke up with me. I'm heartbroken. I get it. That can be really hard. But it's the seasons in life where you're feeling absolutely crushed or suffocated. I don't know how I started developing this sort of claustrophobia with people. <laughs> um, it's happened twice. One was Times Square, New York, and the other was coming off the train in London, and hundreds of people pouring through just three turnstiles, and I just started feeling like suffocated because I'm literally getting pressed by these people. He's thinking of situations in your life that do that to you. You feel like you can barely grasp a gasp in air and in the middle of being crushed and you want this weight off of you. A loving person is patient there. Impatience is lack of love. Love is patient. Paul channels that here. It's easy to be patient when there's nothing to be patient for. It's probably embarrassing for many of us how easily we miss this or lose our grip on this, that grip that he wants us to have in verse 9. We're supposed to be patient when we're getting pressed. We're supposed to be patient when we're feeling trouble or affliction. And how tempted are we? As soon as we're in a long line and somebody cuts us off or somebody is taking a little too long when the light turns green and we use that horn and maybe less than a loving way drive by them and give a glare that's maybe less than a loving glare because they took three seconds longer at a light. I know that's ouch on many of us. That's why I say it. <laughs> now, if we, if we have a hard time at a light... What will our demeanor be when we're diagnosed with a disease or when a loved one is taken from us? Now that's crushing patience and hope. That's what love looks like. In that moment, Hallmark doesn't help. Hollywood doesn't help. We need something deeper than that in order to be zealous and serve the Lord with genuine love toward one another when it's difficult to do it. How do I do that if I feel like I don't have that in me all the time? Well, there's a third part, right? Be constant in prayer. I need God to energize me to love the way I should love, to be patient in tribulation. That's not possible for me. That's why I started the sermon by saying it's only if you're in Christ that you can even do this. I dare to say somebody who's patient in tribulation, who's not in Christ, probably isn't a patient person. They're just probably a very docile person. It's not necessarily love. He doesn't want us to turn into wimps. It's the opposite, really. Love endures. Love persists and isn't thrown overboard when the boat gets rocked. 
And the way we do this is the anchor of hope that is highlighted and emphasized when we spend time in prayer. If you are feeling pressed and crushed and you're feeling impatience arise within you, ask yourself, when's the last time I prayed? We have to be in constant prayer for this to be a profile that we live out. And so with this theme of tribulation and getting pressed, there's also this, this understanding that things aren't always going to go well with church. Uh, it, those of us who, just because we're in church, just because we're in the body of Christ, doesn't mean everything's going to go well with us. Saints, Christians experience famines and hunger and oppression and job loss and diseases. We experience all of those things. But we need to be mindful of each other when we're in need. Verse 13, contribute to the saints, contribute to the needs of the saints, and seek to show hospitality. Some of us may be in situations where we don't have a place to stay, we don't have a meal to eat, and we need to invite one another into our homes or to restaurants or into our lives to come and do stuff with us. And I think we're growing in that church. I think we're growing in that. I think we could do that a lot more. I think we could do that even more. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Again, there's that focus on intentionality. This doesn't happen by accident. Contribute to the saints and seek to show hospitality. That's different than being available when somebody asks, hey, can we, borrow, can we use you for hospitality? Yes, I'm available. That's great. You'd be a real jerk to be like, nah. I don't have any room in my life for anybody. No, thank you. Wow, wow, they are definitely, that's definitely in, not right. But then some of us are just, we're willing to be loving, but we're not seeking to show it. And see, Paul's not content to just leave us kind of going by life, just showing love when the opportunity allows it, but looking for the opportunities to show it. That's different. That's intense. That's the zeal that he's after. Seek ways to show hospitality toward one another, to meet each other's needs. Can I help you with that? Can I provide that? Do you have this? Are you going to be alone this Easter, are you alone this Mother's Day? Come with us, we'll celebrate my mom. I don't know. We need to be mindful of each other. Even when the heat that is pressed on our lives is coming in from the outside, verse 14, bless those who persecute you. Bless those who persecute you. Bless them and do not curse them. Our instinct is to curse them. Our instinct is it's to tell them where they can go. But instead, we are to bless them, even in exchange for their cursing. He's going to come back and unpack that in a little bit. But you see that this is a reversal of what our instinct tells us to do. I'm not obligated to bless that person. That person's a jerk. And, lest we be confused... And say, Paul is talking about loving each other inside this community. He doesn't say we have to be loving the people outside the community. Well, not only does he want us to love people outside the community, he wants us to love people outside the community that hate our community and are seeking to destroy it. 
We bless them. We'll come back to that. He continues with hardships in verse 15 because he talks about weeping. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. You know, somebody throws a birthday party and sends out an invitation. A bunch of people want to show up. Somebody's going through a hard time and is weeping. Suddenly, a lot of us feel awkward and have a hard time showing up. Um, I think the emphasis here is probably on the weeping because it's not as hard to rejoice with those who rejoice. Though some of us are maybe such grumps that we have a hard time rejoicing. Don't you understand the world is in a mess right now? How dare you have a birthday party? I don't know, like sort of Christian grinches of joy. And maybe it's just me putting myself in the text. I hope not, but I I think the harder job is weeping with those who weep. And I think the flavor of this section is the difficulties. Yes, there's time for rejoicing. And even if I'm having a hard time in my life, I should try my best to be present at that celebration and celebrate with them the thing they're celebrating and not be the big downer that brings it all crashing because I'm going through something. Rejoice with those who rejoice. There's a time for that, and that's appropriate. But the other part is true as well. When we have people that are hurting and people that are weeping, we need to sit there with them, even if we don't know what to say. He doesn't say console those who weep, have the right word for those who weep, undo their weeping with your magical proverb. Sit there and cry with them. Verse 16, live in harmony with one another. Be in sync with one another. I think it's really just carrying over from the previous verse. Rejoicing with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. Rather than being out of sync with each other, be in sync with each other. Be in harmony with one another. And in order to do that, we have to not be haughty. We have to allow ourselves to associate with the lowly. I love the fact that in our church, we don't have sort of a a caste system of people who are up here and then people who are down here. I don't get any sense that some people don't hang out with other people because they're this or they're that. But throughout history, this has been a reality. Societies divide themselves up by the haves and the have-nots or the, the more and the less. We even have Christians today trying to press that division of haves and have-nots into the church. And I think Paul will have none of that. Don't be haughty. Associate with the lowly. Lowly in what way? Well, there's two ways to translate this. He could mean associate with lowly tasks. Don't be above doing the mopping. Don't be above doing the dishes. Whatever. Don't be above lowly tasks. Or it might mean lowly people. It probably means people. I think either way, we see that he doesn't want us in our pride to distance ourselves from certain portions of the congregation or certain ways to help certain portions of the congregation because, well, I'm this category. And then we spiritualize it. Well, this is my gift. That's not my gift. That's somebody else's gift. Let somebody else do mercy. I don't, I don't do that. I don't really weep with those who weep. That's not my thing. No, that's... As we saw last week, the purpose of the spiritual gifts is not to let you off the hook with all the other ones, but that we have specialists. And I love that in this church, we have a mercy ministry team, and the things that they do, they're probably the most behind-the-scenes and under-celebrated ministry in our church. But we don't go, oh, we have a mercy team, and then not seek to show hospitality. That would be haughty. That would be prideful. 
but we associate with one another. And just to prove that we don't have classes in our church, think about ways that you can show hospitality to people that are outside your circle. Have lunch with somebody that sees things from the view of the other political party. Just do it. Somebody who listens to different music than you do, somebody who views things a little bit differently than you do, gets another story, gets another life, so that you can weep with them, so that you can rejoice with them, so that you're demonstrating, I'm not too proud to hang out with you. I need you in my life. Don't be wise in your own sight. If we went by our own wisdom, we would just enter into our little cliques, the people that we find most easy to love, most easy to get along with. That's not Christian. Everybody does that. And we're allowed to have best friends. We're allowed to have best friends. But we're not allowed to exclude people based on anything that we might associate with being lowly or below us or too different than us not as good as what we do or who we are. Far be it from that. In humility, we recognize it's not our wisdom that is powerful, but God's wisdom. Now he wants to go back to verse 14. People really struggle with this whole section. It's like, he's all over the place. He started talking about persecutors in verse 14, then he just went back to the Christian community in 15 and 16. And then 17 through 21, he goes back to the persecution theme. Might I remind everybody, he didn't have footnotes. Anyone ever write like an essay paper, you had to use footnotes or endnotes or something like that? Okay. You want to say something, but you don't want to put it in the middle of this sentence. You want to put it somewhere so that they can look at it and come back to what you were saying. Right? That might be at the bottom of the page. Sometimes you're reading a book, you see a little number, you're like, where's that? It's in the back of the book, endnotes. All right? I'm not trying to get real nerdy. That shouldn't be too nerdy for those of you who are, at least in high school, you probably understand something of what I'm talking about. They didn't have footnotes here. So I think when he's right, if he was writing this today, verse 14 would have a footnote next to it, and at the bottom of the page, the footnote would get expanded. Verse 14 would get expanded with 19 or 17 to 21, where he reminds us that love persists not just within our community, not just within our community when we're under hardship and getting pressed, but in our community when we're under hardship, getting pressed by loving those who press us. Check it out. He says in verse 17, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink, for by so doing you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not, overcome, uh, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And so he's focusing in on that concept, blessing those who persecute you, not cursing them, but blessing them instead. He's unpacking that. And he doesn't want you to repay evil for evil. They did evil to me, I'm going to do evil to them. But instead, there's the action again. There's the intentionality, being proactive. Give thought to this. 
Sit there at your kitchen table, pull out a pen and paper if you need to, and start brainstorming ahead of time, how am I going to act toward this person? Even though they're putting this pressure on me because I'm a Christian, how can I demonstrate Christ's love to them? It is not going to come naturally. We'll pull out a pen and paper for all kinds of other things, brainstorming vacations, brainstorming retirement plans, brainstorming our trip and where we're going to stop. He wants you to think, give thought to, how to live honorably in the sight of everybody. Now, he uses the word all a couple times here. Do what is honorable in the sight of all at the end of verse 17. If possible, as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Why? Because he's broadening this outside of the church, the four walls of the church. The people out there who don't love Christ. The people out there who hate Christ. And if the more you talk about Christ, the more they will hate you, those kinds of people. All those people, even they can tell it's honorable when you bless them back even though they know a curse should have been coming. That's what he means when he says, do what is honorable in the sight of all. Even the world can see that's, that's, that's love. And our actions start redefining their categories of love, shattering their categories of love, because their categories of love do have payback in it. But when they see the genuine article, the real thing, they realize that's honor. And look, verse 18, it's not always going to be, you know, peace is a two-way street. But as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. That doesn't mean, well, I I tried, but it's a two-way street, and they didn't do it, so I guess we're not going to have peace here. As long as it depends on you, for your part, live in peace with everybody. Then he closes it by talking about vengeance. Don't avenge yourselves. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. You will notice, and we need to be reminded of this, God does not say vengeance is wrong. God says vengeance is not yours. That's different. When you get to Revelation and Jesus is riding a white horse and he's cutting everybody down and he's king of lords, pow! When you read Psalm 2, you don't have to get to Revelation. It's all over Scripture. Kiss the ring or die. How's that for a rosy-cheeked, fair-haired portrait of Jesus Christ? We're like, oh, I thought Jesus was like loving, forgiving, you know, just kind of let it go. He's not. Vengeance isn't wrong or Jesus wouldn't dole it out. Vengeance is wrong when we take it into our hands and take something from Christ that is his. So notice, he wants you to understand there is wrath. God isn't up there not paying attention. When you're taking heat for being a Christian, you're like, I took this apologetics and evangelism class and I started sharing the gospel and my life just started getting worse. Now I'm getting pressed. Now I'm getting... Keep doing it. And leave the wrath part to God. I'm not talking about, oh, this person doesn't like me on Facebook anymore. This person is awkward at the water cooler now. I'm talking about people that inflict pain in your life because you follow Christ. They will get wrath. So leave it to me, he says. 
What I need you to do is bless them. Now here's a controversial verse. I'm going to try to unpack this quick. He quotes in verse 20 what looks like a quote from Jesus, doesn't it? Hey, if your enemy is hungry, feed them. Jesus said, love your enemies, right? If your enemy's thirsty, give your enemy something to drink. Well, he's quoting Proverbs 25 here. This is an Old Testament verse about how to respond to your enemies. Now, this is variously translated. I think people trip over it uh, because it sounds kind of weird. If your enemy is hungry, feed your enemy. If your enemy is thirsty, give him something to drink. But then it kind of takes a weird turn where the person is not going, here's your drink, oh, I love you so much. Can we have a hug after you finish this drink? It's like, here's this drink. And in the back of your mind, you're like keeping hot coals on his head. Right? It's kind of weird. How do I do a loving action when in the back of my mind, I'm like, wrath is in store. Drink up. And like, no, commentators are like, well, that doesn't really fit. It must, it must mean something else. Let's find this old Egyptian thing that Paul probably wasn't aware of and sort of reinterpret it to say uh, the heaping coals would make them feel remorse. And the more the loving the actions are that we give to the persecutor, the more coals heap on their head and make them think, oh, I'm really, I'm a jerk. Maybe I should change. And so that the cup of cold water, the meal that we offer them when they're hungry, even though they stole meals from us, to keep the analogy together, would make them feel so remorseful that perhaps they might repent. I think that interpretation might be possible, but I really don't think that's what Paul is after here. I think what he means is what I was poking fun at a moment ago. I think he really does mean the more they persecute us and the more loving we are toward them and they keep heaping up persecution on top of the love that we keep heaping up, it just keeps raising the level of wrath that is in store for them. I mean, do burning coals feel any good? Interestingly, if you walk through Old Testament passages, let me just look up burning coals everywhere else. Judgment, 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 and judgment. Oh, here, it can't mean judgment. It must mean something else. Mm, probably not. And then, just to bring it home, it's what he just said, isn't it? It's what Paul just said. Never avenge yourselves, verse 19. Never avenge yourselves. Leave that wrath to God because vengeance is God's. That wrathful vengeance is God's, and he's promising, I will repay them. So you don't worry about it. You, the lane that you drive in is not figuring out the wrath. I'll figure out the wrath. You leave that to me. You just endure the pummeling right now. Now, if that cup of cold water changes the person, if that meal that you provided changes the person, they escape the wrath, and we can join them and praise God and say, Hallelujah, you found repentance in Christ because I should get wrath. But the reason why I don't get wrath is because Jesus bore the wrath for me. And therefore, wrath is not my department. That's someone else's department. And you can kiss the sun and take refuge in him so that the sun covers you and he bears the wrath. Or you can oppose the sun. I don't think we give the cup of cold water and just go, I hope he doesn't repent. I'm excited about those burning coals. When you recognize those burning coals would have been on you had you not found 
faith in Christ. But we do have to understand that God is not asleep. He's not the, the, the principal that is too afraid to go after the bully's parents. He sees, he watches, he knows. And we need to be ready to respond to the heat that the world is ready to dole out to us in this environment that we live in with this escalating pressure on Christianity. We need to be ready for that. Some of us are like, I'm going to move to a more conservative state. Well, how long before that one starts imploding? I'm not saying it's wrong to move. I'm just saying it's wrong to feel like we're dodging evil by moving to places that are maybe more in line with us politically, but not necessarily a Christian community. We are going to feel vengeance from the world. And we are going to take heat. A passage like this prepares us not by telling us what's to store in our bunker, which politicians to, to vote for. And not that being prepared is a bad thing. We need to be mindful, smart. We live in an actual world with actual things happening. But while we're doing all that, we need to look at a profile like this and ask, are we demonstrating love in our community, the kind of love that can withstand the test of tribulation when it comes. And I don't know if we're able to do that outside of what we find in Christ. In fact, I should take that back. I know that we can't do that outside of Jesus Christ. But we find our faith in him. The hope that we have in him is what produces this kind of love that we stoke, that we cling to, and everything that doesn't look like it all the evil that doesn't look like the love that's profiled in this passage, we abhor it. We abhor it in our own lives, and we cling to what the genuine article looks like. Let's pray. Father, we need your help for this, Lord, because as we read these verses in, in many ways and all ways, they're a beautiful picture of you, and of your son, Jesus Christ, and what he looks like. Uh, we pray that by your grace, as we lean on you for it, that you would shape us, fashion us to live out this profile. And as we read this list um, each day, each month, each year, if we read this list, we would, it would look more like us than it did last time we read it. As we close in the song, Father, may your spirit grant us that kind of grace to love truly and authentically with one another and toward those who press us. For your name. It's in your name we pray it, Jesus. Amen.